The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. All right, thanks very much, Scott Wapner. I am Dominic Chu on The Exchange. Here's what's ahead on the show. The markets may be at new highs, but one Fed governor says the economy is still ready to rip. So will this rally keep chugging? Plus, could COVID's aftermath prove a positive for the airline industry? One analyst says yes, and he's betting on it with a double upgrade on a number of names. He'll join us in just a bit. And a CNBC special investigation stealing from Main Street the details of a nationwide scheme that has cost taxpayers, get this, $84 billion. But we begin with another record-setting day in the markets overall, especially for those down the S&P 500. So take a look at this, because we have moderated some of those moves today. The Dow Industrials were much higher at one point still, though, up about one quarter of 1%. The S&P 500 also up about two-tenths of 1% as well. They both get gold stars. They both hit record intraday levels earlier today. The Nasdaq, well off the session low, is just about flat now on the day. 14,032, the last trade there. If you take a look at the overall picture for some of the other parts of the market we're keeping an eye on, over the last week, would it surprise you that it's the utility stocks that have been the real outperformer, the best performing sector in the S&P 500 so far this week? So a defensive name, that's a little bit more on the upside there. Meanwhile, financials and communication services, two of the focus points for a lot of traders over the last several weeks are actually the underperformers this week. Financials perhaps wrapping up this week, maybe a little bit of profit taking. And speaking of, let's talk about whether or not we are seeing some of that profit taking. Morgan Stanley, Ally Financial, PNC, three of the financially oriented bank type names reporting results today. Morgan Stanley, great results, beat on the top and bottom line, still though off about three and one quarter percent. Ally Financial hit a record high earlier in the session, but now a little bit of profit taking and momentum slowing down there. PNC, though, holding on to gains up two percent as well there. So keep an eye on those big financials. Well, markets are near all time highs. But if the Fed governor Christopher Waller is right, there may be even more room to run from here. Mr. Waller says the economy is, quote, ready to rip. He points out that there's still a long way to go. So there's no reason for the Fed to be pulling the plug on support. Joining me now to discuss Marco, Marco Papich, Clock Tower Chief Group Strategist, and Marianne Montaigne, Gradient Investments Portfolio Manager as well. Thank you both for being with us here. Marianne, we'll start with you first. What exactly about this market could be constructive going forward, even though we sit at record highs? Well, I think what's constructive, first of all, is in the banks that have reported so far, where we thought there might be more profit-taking, we're actually seeing them stabilize Or if you look at the iShares Equal Weighted Financials ETF, uh, you will see that they're uh, actually up slightly today. So the fact that they're holding in and there's not broad-based profit-taking is actually an indicator that uh, investors are standing by and waiting to see a next leg up. So, Marco, are investors justified to be as bullish as they are right now, given the massive run that we've seen? Is the macroeconomic environment, the market environment, still constructive overall? Can we still say that it's safe to own risk assets? Well, I mean, it depends on what your time horizon is. So if you're a longer-term investor, I think it's pretty clear we're in a bull market. 
Um, and I mean, unless, you know, somehow the COVID variants become extremely infectious or extremely deadly, I don't think that's going to change. The, the Fed remains very easy. Fiscal support is ample. Um, and also you'll start seeing global growth catch up to the U.S. I think the biggest risk in the near term, though, is the economic optimism, because, of course, the tenure has stabilized at below 1.6. But with some of the uh, big supply months coming up in terms of auctions in May and then later in July and August, you you will see higher tenure yields. That has to happen, given that I agree that we're in an extraordinarily uh, strong economic uh, upturn. Uh, Marianne, it's been one of those uh, perhaps big questions that we've talked about for, for weeks now at this point. This notion that are there still values in the marketplace right now if the markets are at record highs? You mentioned some of those names before, but I wonder if you look at the optimism around the economy. We know things are getting better. Can you tell us just how far this can go with the economy still the way it is and projected to be even better in the course of the next two to three quarters? Yeah, I think if you're looking at the earnings to drive the uh, uh, numbers up and the P.E. ratios down, which is what we expect, I think we can look at maybe another 10 percent upside from here. And I think it will be broad based, but more so on the cyclical side of things. And that being the financials and the materials and then the industrials. Uh, some consumer discretionary, depending. Uh, but I think it's going to be pretty broad based. And, you know, if you look at the New York Times article of today about uh, the coronavirus and the variants and the, the coverage, I think that we have a really strong trend for the underlying health of the individuals, which will drive the health of the economy. Marco, does that does that click with what you think right now? Is it is it those deep value cyclical type sectors, those industry groups that have that have really been beaten up and are now starting to benefit from a, uh, an, an economy that keeps reopening? Are, are those the plays? Is that momentum still going to be there? Well, you know, look, I mean, six months ago, you know, folks were still pulling their hair out, thinking that, you know, there was a chance of a deep recession. So right now, no one's doing that. So it's already priced in the extraordinary growth in the U.S., I think I agree with Marianne. I would just add that global cyclicals should really be part of the portfolio here because um, Europe is not going to be incompetent on vaccines and dealing with COVID forever. Uh, and the rest of the world, especially emerging markets, are going to benefit from the upturn in commodity prices. The other issue is that the dollar had this nice little tactical rally, uh, which you know was a problem for global cyclicals, but it has really come off pretty uh, pretty convincingly. And so I think that's that's a real positive reason to own non-U.S. assets. All right. Non-U.S. assets, a big focus for sure. Maybe a catch-up trade there. Marco Papage, thank you very much. Also, Marianne Montaigne, we, we appreciate your thoughts. Thank you. Thanks, Dad. All right. And speaking of those cyclical type sectors with the markets at all-time highs, airlines are taking flight this year as well. Hawaiian, American, Southwest, Alaska Air, United, you name them, they're all up at least 30% since January, as you can see there. For a closer look at the sector overall, we are now joined by our Phil LeBeau, the man with the pulse of what's happening in the skies. So, Phil, this airline, the constructive move we've seen, does it have legs? Depends on who you talk with, and not all carriers are the same, which isn't a surprise. In any industry, certain uh, companies are going to do better than others, depending on what's happening. In terms of the reopening, let's focus on what we're going to be seeing in May, because we are seeing all of the airlines add capacity. 
This is in comparison to pre-pandemic, before the pandemic hit. So you're comparing this with 2019, Southwest and Alaska. Not a surprise that they have brought back the most capacity and have the, the lowest reduction, given the fact that they're primarily domestically oriented. And they are domestic oriented. They don't have the international uh, aspect that you get with American Delta and United. As you take a look at the airlines, in particular, let's take a look at Delta. Now, yesterday when they reported their earnings, Delta came out and they said that they're expecting revenue to be down about 50 percent uh, in the second quarter. And then it starts to build from there. What you're looking at are the TSA passenger levels. Now, they're off right now anywhere between 30 and 40 percent. But the expectation, not just when we talked with Ed Bastard at Delta, but when we talked with other airline executives, is that it will continue to grow throughout the summer and that heading into the fall, they expect it to be maybe not all the way back, but it'll be back maybe 80 percent compared to where it was pre-pandemic, because right now we're down 30 to 40 percent. The thing you're going to be watching for if you're an investor, where do the airlines stand when it comes to debt levels? Because ultimately, they're going to be spending a lot of the cash that they're generating paying off their debt. And here's the ones, according to Raymond James, the Delta number is updated uh, given their report yesterday. American and United, uh, much higher than what you see with Southwest and Alaska. Bottom line is this, Dom, a lot of people right now are focused on Southwest because they've got a couple of things going in their favor. The domestic route structure, the demand for domestic flights right now, and they don't have as much debt as some of their competitors. And that's one reason why you hear a lot of analysts say, well, take a look at Southwest right now. It doesn't mean it's the only trade, but it's the one trade that people will be focused on. And by the way, we'll hear from Southwest along with Alaska, American, and United next week. It's a big week for earnings for sure from those air carriers. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. Now, despite the rally that we've seen this year, your next guest says there is still upside for those airline stocks. He recently double upgraded both JetBlue and Spirit Airlines from outright sell ratings to now outright buy ratings. We are talking, of course, of Jamie Baker, J.P. Morgan senior analyst tracking those airlines. We've seen him on this show before. He's given us his call. Jamie, thank you very much for joining us yet again. So Phil LeBeau laid out a number of moving parts, including traffic numbers and debt levels When it comes to your constructiveness on certain parts of the airline industry, what exactly is the main motivating factor for why you think this has still got room to fly? Sure. Uh, We think that we can comfortably rule out the potential that COVID's aftermath presents any long-term structural impairment to the industry. We think we can rule that scenario out. The debate that we're having and that we suggest investors have uh, is whether COVID's aftermath simply represents a return to normalcy or possibly even a return or or an escalation of margins. Could the COVID aftermath prove to be a positive for the industry? We think there is that potential. And that's one, you know, of the driving factors uh, behind the, you know, ratings changes that we made this week. So, so take us through the JetBlue thesis. The JetBlue and Spirit, they were sells before and now they're buys. We just skipped neutral. Why exactly those two airlines and what, what, what are the big factors that are driving those particular buy ratings? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's what you and Phil already touched upon. You know, it's the resilience of demand recovery of, among consumers. And ultimately, that's going to lead to, you know, sort of a corporate reopening trade. But these are airlines that carry very little corporate travel. They're not dependent on international borders reopening. All right. And, you know, we get to see the TSA data, as does everybody. We also have access to Chase credit card spend. So we get to see what's coming out of people's wallets and being plunked down for, you know, leisure travel this summer. 
And, and all of those data points are, are very, very encouraging. Now, it's not all positive. Not all airlines are going to participate as equally. We've talked about capital structures. Are there airlines within your coverage universe that you think are due for underperformance, given the performance we've seen over the last several months? No, we're not looking for material downside unless something really goes sideways, you know, with COVID or vaccinations and what have you. Uh, the group has rallied, you know, pretty constructively. I think that the, the domestic reopening trade has probably come close to running its course. The next trade is going to be the corporate reopening and the international reopening. And, you know, we think that's one reason we have an overweight rating on Delta. We think that stock, that company is, is particularly well positioned to take advantage of the next reopening legs that have yet to, to begin. All right. J.P. Morgan's Jamie Baker with the airline call. Thank you very much. Have a nice weekend, sir. You bet. You too. Thanks. Well, now we've got a news alert on Square Space. Kate Rooney with the details there. Kate. Hey there, John. Square Space just putting out uh, filing with the SEC for a direct listing. They're going with the New York Stock Exchange. Ticker here is going to be SQSP. This is a software company reminder people use Squarespace to make websites. And by the way, it's profitable going into this direct listing. They reported uh, 30.6 million in net income on about 620 million of revenue last year. Revenue is growing about 28% year over year. So profitable going into this event. The company was last valued at about $10 billion in its last funding round. They had submitted a draft to go public uh, confidentially, but we are getting a couple more details here. Dom, of course, is the latest company to forego that traditional IPO. We've had a couple direct listings lately. Coinbase, of course, uh, the big one this week. Back to you. I guess they don't need investment bankers to sell stock to people anymore these days. Kate Rooney with the update on Squarespace. Thank you very much. Coming up on the show, there's one sector of the market that's rarely talked about but could be a big beneficiary of an infrastructure plan. We'll break down what it is and how investors can play it. And a story you don't want to miss. A man taken into police custody charged with stealing taxpayer money meant to help small businesses during the virus pandemic. That big CNBC investigation is coming up next. Keep it right here. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Small businesses across the country got a much-needed boost from the government's Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, and Economic Injury Disaster Loans, EIDL. Those programs rolled out last year, you may recall. Now, notices are making their way to businesses and individuals to pay back those loans. The notices are very real, but the loans in numerous cases are fraudulent. Part of a staggering nationwide scheme to rip off taxpayers and steal money meant for Main Street. In a CNBC investigations piece, Kate Rogers joins us now to dig into some of the problems around stealing from Main Street. 
With guns drawn, police in Florida order the driver out of his car. Step out the vehicle. Hand me step out the vehicle. Responding to an unrelated complaint, officers discover the suspect has an outstanding warrant for defrauding the Small Business Administration. Put your hands on your back. It's one example of a potential overall $84 billion fraud to steal money meant to help small businesses. Richard Clark is a detective with the Lauder Hill, Florida Police Department. Based on my experience, I mean, a lot of people have taken advantage of lapses in the system to benefit personally from applying for loans, either deceptively or using other person's information. Clark says 32-year-old Xavier Taylor was able to obtain $81,100 from the SBA's Paycheck Protection Program by stealing personal information from a business owner. Facing multiple fraud charges, Taylor has pled not guilty. So far, $626 million has been seized or forfeited as a result of civil and criminal investigations of the Paycheck Protection Program and Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, according to a recent report by the House Select Subcommittee on COVID. Victims around the country tell us they're astounded at how easy it was for criminals to exploit the system. Max Hebert lives in Wisconsin and fulfills grocery orders for Walmart. After being deployed in Ukraine last year with the National Guard, the SBA sent Hebert this notice to pay back a $45,000 loan with his name misspelled. He says the SBA told him there was a disaster loan taken out in his name. And then they recommended that I go to identitytheft.gov to file an identity theft report. The Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program allowed small businesses to borrow based on temporary losses of revenue due to the pandemic. Hebert doesn't even own a business. So you're not planning to repay it, I assume? I don't really have a good way to repay that. I mean, $45,000 is more than I make in a year. The agency says the loan is on hold pending further review. By next tax season, are they going to try to seize my tax return? Are they going to you know, try to garnish my paycheck if I don't? resolve the situation in time. There's definitely a lot of things to be worried about. And he's not alone. Karina Keyes owns a digital media firm in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Keyes received a loan under the PPP, which offers loans that can be forgiven if impacted businesses use them to keep workers employed. So she didn't need another one from the SBA. Then this payment notice came in the mail for a $150,000 loan taken out under the EIDL as well. The shock of it turned to really a lot of frustration and anger. Even though the application listed inaccurate details for her company, like its phone number, the loan somehow got approved. The SBA notice says she has to start paying back the loan in November. Do you think it'll get resolved? Well, I am a very, very trusting person, and so I want to believe that it will get resolved and that we will not be responsible to repay that loan. In response to our investigation, the SBA says that the Biden-Harris administration takes seriously its responsibility to safeguard taxpayer dollars and prevent fraud, waste and abuse in federal programs, adding, quote, in recent months, new enhanced checks have been put in place to intensify system validations used to mitigate the occurrence of fraud in the economic injury disaster loan and paycheck protection programs. The SBA went on to say it is working with various federal law enforcement agencies to combat the fraud, but Dom, it would not discuss individual borrowers. Back over to you. I, I mean, Kate, this is a crazy story here. So the Small Business Administration says new enhanced checks are in place. What are actually some of the changes being made to ensure in the process that this does not happen again? 
you know, the Office of the Inspector General of the SBA has been looking into this, and essentially the OIG said a lot of the guardrails that were typically in place, particularly for EIDL, were removed in order to get money out of the door quickly to Main Street. One of the most important things removed was the ability to get current tax information from the IRS directly to the SBA. So some of the new checks put in place, uh, identity system validation here, looking into people's bank accounts and validating those. They also mentioned IP address and device screenings being some of the checks put in place. But Detective Clark, who you heard from the piece, said this was ridiculously easy for criminals to access funding through these different programs. So I think a lot of eyes are now on the more recent iterations of PPP and EIDL. And there are a lot of people uh, working to ensure that this will not continue to happen. So we'll have to wait and see. All right. Massive fraud there with those paycheck protection programs and EIDL loans. Thank you very much, Kate, for for that report on CNBC investigations. By the way, go to CNBC.com for more on that big story. Well, coming up in the show, the NFL is doing something it's never done before. Betting big on betting. The details and the stock winners coming up ahead. Plus, the magic number of the day is four hundred and ninety five million. That story next after the exchange comes back with this break. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now are higher, generally speaking, but we're well off the session highs. At those highs, the Dow Industrial is up roughly 220 points. You can see we've shaved about half of those gains off, about 100 points to the upside right now. The S&P 4177, the last trade there, two-tenths of 1%. The Nasdaq off the session lows as well, though, off one-tenth of 1%, 14,021, the last trade there. Let's check on the sectors you can see as well here. Gains being led by materials right now. Meanwhile, energy stocks are some of the worst performers on the day alongside communication services. Here are some of the big movers this hour. Shares of Alcoa higher after beating on the top and bottom lines. A surge in aluminum prices, the main tailwind there. You can see those shares up 8%. And then check out Lumber, finishing the week out with a fresh high today. That commodity is now up 15% in just this past week here. Those shares, again, again, the commodity up about 3%. And then take a look at some of the home builders in relation to that. Toll Brothers, KB Home, DR Horton, all gaining with DR Horton hitting an all-time high in today's trade. Wells Fargo initiating coverage on that group with an overweight on a, quote, huge upside bias. Now let's send it over to Courtney Reagan for a CNBC News update. Good afternoon, Courtney. Hi, Dom. It's good to see you. Well, President Biden has signed an executive order that will speed up the admission of refugees into the U.S. However, Biden has not raised former President Trump's historically low cap on the number of refugees allowed in this year. Learn about one mother's fight to get her migrant son out of government custody. That's tonight on the news with Shepard Smith. Well, heavy metal guitarist from Indiana is the first person to plead guilty to federal charges in connection with the Capitol Hill insurrection on January 6th. Prosecutors say he was among the rioters who used bear spray on Capitol police officers. Liberty University is suing Jerry Falwell Jr., seeking more than $10 million in damages. The school is accusing its former president of breach of contract and breach of fiduciary duty. And Attorney General Merrick Garland has rescinded a Trump-era memo that curtailed the use of consent decrees. 
which have been used to force changes at police departments and other government agencies with widespread abuse and misconduct. Dom, back over to you. All right, thank you very much, Courtney. Reagan with the news update there. Coming up on the show, the NFL calls an audible on gambling. Robo-advisors get a boost from meme stocks. Turkey turns against crypto. And Disney just dominates. That's all ahead in rapid fire. But first, it is Friday, and that means it's time to look ahead to what's in store for your money next week. Here is your Friday Fast Forward. The Earnings Parade marches on next week. Netflix reporting results. Investors will be watching to see if they can withstand competition from the likes of Disney Plus as more people leave their living rooms. We'll also hear from Chipotle, which is up nearly 10% this year. And Johnson & Johnson will deliver numbers amid a pause in the company's COVID vaccinations as the CDC evaluates risks. Apple holds a product event ahead on Tuesday. New iPads and AirTags are expected to be announced. This ahead of its testimony alongside Google in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee on App Store Competition. Plus, the White House holds a climate summit. New and existing home sales for the month of March give us a read on the tight housing market. And as economies reopen, airlines, including United, American, and Southwest, will report results. The sector is up 27% in 2021. Can it keep soaring? That's your Friday Fast Forward. Welcome back to the show. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines are Contessa Brewer, Kate Rooney, and Tim Seymour, Chief Investment Officer at Seymour Asset Management. He is, of course, also a CNBC contributor and fast money trader as well. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for being here with us. First up, the NFL is inking its first sportsbook deal in history with DraftKings, FanDuel, and Caesars. The partnerships give the league coverage on three fronts, casinos, fantasy sports, and then editorial content. On Squawk Box, our Contessa Brewer asked the CEO of FanDuel why the company would enter an agreement with its competitors. For us, we're playing the long game. We look at the fact that we're in the early stages of growth in this industry. We think that aligning with the NFL is not just good for us, but it's good for the industry. And so consequently, we're willing to to share with a couple of our competitors because we know that on the open field of competition that we're going to win. All right, Contessa, you've also spoken to DraftKings. They weighed in. What did they say? Yeah, DraftKings is also really excited because it gets the exclusive partnership on fantasy sports as well, which, don't forget, is legal in more states than even, um, and, than even sports gambling. So that's a big deal for them. Uh, I talked to Caesars, and Caesars says, look, this is great for us because not only are we the official casino partner, but on the sports gambling stuff, they get to integrate all of the NFL's content that FanDuel and DraftKings does. Plus, they get to place their content on NFL properties, as the other two do. Uh, and and then in Las Vegas next year, when it has the draft and the Pro Bowl, it just makes a great cross-partnership possibility happen there. Uh, they they think that this is going to boost the industry overall. It's estimated to be a, almost a billion-dollar deal over five years. The NFL, we're told, has the possibility to reconsider the deal at year three. And at that point, if it works out, they may ask for more money. Hey, Tim Seymour, does this make you want to bet on football, these formalized partnerships? Look, if you think about where we've come from a relationship with the major sports leagues and and Las Vegas, 
Uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson and Pete Rose might have a pretty good leg to stand on these days. It, it's extraordinary. Uh, the addressable market, we know what's been going on state by state. New York, even with a clumsy release on sports betting and online gambling last week. Uh, you know, DraftKings and Caesars are the two ways that I think, and Penn Gaming, that investors have really played this. Caesars with that William Hill acquisition, and as Contessa pointed out, I mean, their poll position uh, here on some level in terms of the bookies, uh, they already have such a big footprint. And, and the stocks, the valuations, again, for investors don't make sense. You're, you're buying a land grab and you're buying that linear re relationship between growing addressable market and where you think these companies are going to be in the future. All right, it's a big story there for sure. Formalized ties between a major, major league sports league and betting applications. <laughs> Next up, trading apps like Robinhood weren't the only ones benefiting from the rise of meme stocks as of late. Robo-advisors as well got a boost from the zeitgeist. Digital investment advisor Betterment more than doubled its number of new clients and net deposits in the first quarter of this year. Its CEO attributes the record-breaking growth to the excitement around GameStop and the like, saying that what it's done is shining a light on investing generally. Kate, this seems kind of within the realm of reason. More, more attention means more accounts opened up. Right, it's sort of the rising tide argument. And Sarah Levy, I spoke to yesterday, was saying people often have multiple accounts, so they're doing sort of their long-term investing with Betterment, and she called it sort of having fun with someone else and betting or day trading. With some of these other startups, she did, though, say that, you know, she encourages people to get on the momentum. She wanted people to, as she put it, not miss out on some of those FOMO trades. And she's a former Viacom executive. She said she recognizes this moment in terms of social media, meme stocks and sort of the excitement around the markets. So she said that they want to capitalize on this. But she was pretty worried about sort of the GameStop rally what's happening here. Um, but we talking about engagement and, and sports betting. If you look at where the app store is right now, we're looking at Apple in particular. Robinhood and Coinbase are number one and number two on the <laughs> Apple app store right now. So if you think of social media must be, I don't know if they're shaking in their boots or thinking about, you know, investing and trading as sort of the new form of entertainment on people's phones and stealing eyeballs away from things like TikTok, which is number three on the list. So that does definitely mark we're in a moment here right now with social media and investing. You know, it's Kate, it's funny because I, I, I saw Vlad Tenev, the CEO and founder of, of, of Robinhood, tweeting about it earlier today. He tweeted out a screenshot of Robinhood and Coinbase being one and two on the free app store. I went and looked just because, you know, Coinbase Pro is also a, a related app to Coinbase itself. It's down to like 176 or something like that on the list right now. So, Tim Seymour, I guess my question to you is, yes. when do some of these Coinbase people start to go the pro route because they're getting more seasoned in their trading ability? Well, you know, I think it's it's happening. And I think if, if you look at, like, just to, to make my snarky comment, the, the millennials are getting out of their parents' basement and they actually have a couple nickels to rub together and they like the stock market and they like gambling. And these two segments kind of do go together because think about this demographic. And it's one that, you know, you can make an argument that Betterment and, and Robinhood have a pole position on those assets. They're not putting money into a new Merrill Lynch account. With all due respect, love Bank of America. Um, so it, it's a really important time. Think of what they're, they're doing to the housing market, too. I mean, if you think about really, you know, the, the, the delta and the incremental new buyer in the housing market, it's not just the exodus from the cities. 
So it, it's, it's an exciting time. And if you think about the impact, we've spent a lot of time both on Fast Money and on this network trying to determine the impact overall in markets. Um, and, and, you know, just back to Roaring Kitty, it's not all about, you know, kamikaze investing and, and just going with the, uh, the, the mass crowd appeal. Sure. It's, it's really, you know, think about it. This is a guy that made a call on stocks and, and obviously it's paid off massively. Contessa, is this a good thing? Yeah, well, I mean, look at, look at Robinhood. It's not just millennials. It's also Gen Z that they're comfortable on their apps. They're comfortable playing games. It's the gamification of investing. We've talked about it before. And Kate Rooney and I have talked about this quite extensively about the ways that they've just taken a page out of video gaming and gambling apps, and they're making it relevant. They're making it easy to use. So the upside is that you have younger people involved with investing. The downside is it has some of the same risks in terms of problem investing or problem trading that gambling does as well. And it's something that I think you're going to see regulators paying more closely uh, the attention on that. Well, we know that the virtual confetti is gone from certain of those applications right now. Anyway, (laughs) turning now to where Turkey, the country, The central bank there has banned the use of cryptocurrencies and crypto assets to purchase goods and services. The central bank citing, quote, possible irreparable damage and significant transaction risks in the legislation they just panned down. The heavy handed regulation cooling off Bitcoin and Ethereum prices today, as you can see there, but not by a whole heck of a lot on a relative basis. In fact, though, Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong warned that such regulation is one of the biggest risks when it comes to cryptocurrency and that business. So Kate Rooney... You watch it all the time. We say it all the time. When governments get involved, this is when things could go awry. Is this just the tip of the iceberg for a country kind of split between Europe and Asia? A lot of people look at this as, you know, what could come out of other countries? And there are really different policies depending on the country. It definitely pours some cold water on the Bitcoin rally because the thought is if others come in and do this and worry about their own currency. And Robert Frank was reporting yesterday about taxes and the idea of sort of evading that and losing income as a as a government. That's a big issue. You think about the U.S., though, and what they're doing. They are probably more worried about Bitcoin, you know, taking some of their market share because it is a global reserve currency. The lira isn't you know, potentially as at risk if you think about Bitcoin versus <laughs> the U.S. dollar. People see a lot of the same use cases there. So I think sure. that is huge. And you you think about you know, the idea of a global U.S. dollar currency or a stable coin. I think that's sort of the next leg of this conversation. Could they displace Bitcoin or come in with a challenger digital currency that's pegged to the dollar and also issued by a government. All right. So, so Tim Seymour, you're the emerging markets guy. Is this Turkey move something that could spread to other governments around the world? It, it, you know, this isn't unique to Turkey, but I want to be clear, as someone that spent a lot of time investing in Turkey, loves Turkey, loves Turkish people, loves Turkish food, uh, one of the great deep emerging markets. Um, you know, the Turkish Central Bank lost all kinds of credibility about five years ago when they no longer were one of the independent central banks in EM. Erdogan controls the central bank. And this is this is a political statement. This is political fear. Uh, I don't think Turkey is necessarily leading the charge on this. And, and I, I would I would brush this central bank's comment off a lot more than I would other central banks. All right. Big move there by the Turkish central bank. And finally, our last topic. If you are looking for something to watch this weekend, might we suggest we don't even need to these days. The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Enough people are already watching it. The Disney Plus show premiered back in March, and actually the streaming service hinted back then that the Marvel spinoff was the biggest debut in its short streaming history. New numbers from Nielsen are backing it up. 
The premiere episode drew in, get this, a whopping 495 million streaming minutes, putting the show ahead of the WandaVision premiere and well ahead of The Mandalorian. Disney investors seem really happy about the news. You can see there those shares off a little bit, but still higher. It's a streaming story. Contessa has been for a while with Disney. Netflix had the first mover advantage, but Disney is now capitalizing the most on this. Are these franchises the ones driving all of that viewing? Well, if you think about it, I, I think families were probably ad- early adopters on Disney, uh, the streaming service, because anybody with kids knows that there's hours and hours and hours of programming there for the small set. Now it's interesting because they're getting adults to sign up for this. Any, anybody who's fans of Marvel and the whole superhero genre is going to be drawn in. And those of us who have already subscribed might sit down and actually watch WandaVision, no matter what we think of it. I, I mean, it, it might be overhyped. I, I, you know, I, listen, I, you're not going to sell me because I'm I'm a fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So so I should just disclose <laughs> that right now. Tim Seymour, this is very much a streaming story, has been for Disney for a while. We're turning attention now to the covid reopening trade for Disney. I, I know that because, you know, this is the driving force behind it. But how big of a streaming deal will this be? How much does Disney have to keep replicating this going forward? Well, Disney's priced in a lot of great streaming momentum, and it's been extraordinary. As someone that's been long Disney, because the sense was, um, even if you get some kind of a hybrid streaming, multiple a la Netflix, um, Disney's now trading at about 40 times 2022 earnings at, at five bucks a share, which um, I, I think is, is generous. Look, I, I, I still love the story here. I, I still think that Disney has uh, a content machine uh, and a studio that's really getting going again. Uh, the crisis in streaming has shown the kind of the dual release dynamics, and that only adds Adds uh, to you know video on demand, premium PVOD uh, demand, which drives streaming. So good for Disney. I-, I think you stay there. All right, big topics for sure. Thank you guys very much, Contessa Brewer, Kate Rooney, and Tim Seymour. We appreciate Thank it. You. Have a nice weekend, guys. Well, coming up, while typical infrastructure plays like builders and energy companies have gotten a lot of attention after President Biden proposed $2 trillion worth of spending, the municipal bond market also could stand to benefit. We'll take a look at the risks and rewards in munis coming up next. And April is Financial Literacy Month. CNBC is committed to sharing messages from business and thought leaders about the importance of financial education. Here is CNBC contributor and former senator from North Dakota, Heidi Heitkamp. One of the foundations of our democracy is the free enterprise system. It's that we all can contribute economically, and when we all contribute economically, we succeed. And so having that kind of economic resiliency in American families is critical to the success of the American democracy and and critical, obviously, to the success of the American family. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are not the only winners from the economic recovery. High-yield municipal bond funds saw a record $1.3 billion in inflows over the past week. That's thanks in part to optimism around President Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure proposal. Bank of America recently said we could be headed for a, quote, golden decade for muni bonds under President Biden, especially if Congress passes this infrastructure plan. For more now on what infrastructure spending could mean for the muni bond market, let's bring in Nisha Patel, Director of Fixed Income and Portfolio Manager at Parametric. Thank you very much, Nisha, for joining us here. The muni bond market is key for so many of our viewers and listeners out there because they are looking for that tax-free income. 
Take us through what's driving the muni bond activity today. Is it the infrastructure optimism? It is. And year to date, we've seen tremendous flows into municipal bond funds, into municipal bond products. Uh, muni bonds have outperformed the respectable taxable counterparts pretty considerably, particularly in the high yield space. And I think a lot of this demand, it's driven because of the prospect of higher taxes and certainly the certainty that taxes are not going to be going down from here. Now, if you take a look at the infrastructure bill, you know, one of the key components here is on how it's going to be paid for which with certainty, corporate tax rates uh, being raised is, is one uh, kind of aspect of that. Now, President Biden has mentioned individual tax rates going up, but it's not directly tied to this infrastructure bill. But even for corporations, which hold about 20% of municipal bonds, uh, which is not very well known, you know, if their tax rates do go up considerably, I think you could also see them uh, coming to buy more municipal bonds. Is it strictly because of the, the prospect for higher taxes in this infrastructure plan that's driving the muni flows? Or, or, or could it be other factors as well? S- say, maybe some of the projects and plans that could go into it. What exactly does that whole trade kind of look like in your mind? Yeah, so if you take a look at the details of the bill, obviously, you know, given that the main proposal or the main bill really is for infrastructure, infrastructure uh, a lot of money in that breakdown is for transportation, is for clean drinking water initiatives, is for affordable housing. Uh, a lot of this overlaps with municipalities and the type of debt that they issue. And so, you know, one of the key components that we're looking out for is how exactly does this affect supply? You know, there's no doubt about it that municipalities will have to play some role in this. However, do they roll out some sort of a program like they did back in 2010, where there's a subsidy that municipal issuers receive to issue a loan under, under this new program? Uh, or, you know, are they receiving some sort of another incentive? But I think from an investor standpoint, there's going to be, you know, certainly more opportunity, I think, possibly from an issuance perspective. And as a resurgence of ESG investing is coming about in many aspects of the market, we are starting to see that in municipal bonds as well. So that's something that I think investors are looking out for. Uh, more ESG friendly, again, clean drinking water initiatives, affordable housing type of projects that they could take advantage of in the municipal bond market, which, you know, typically hasn't been done before. Nisha, in our last few moments here, is the demand that you're seeing for munis right now coming just from those high tax states like New York or New Jersey, Connecticut, California, those places? Or do you see a broadening out of muni interest across the country? We see a fairly broad interest across the country, but, you know, no doubt that it is coming from high tax states. Now, keep in mind, with the uh, state and local tax deduction, the SALT cap, uh, that's put tremendous pressure and effectively has raised taxes for high-income earners in the top tax states. So, you know, we have seen a huge demand uh, come in from California, from New York, from other high-tax states since the SALT cap went uh, into effect. Uh, But I would say it's it's even more broad-based. You know, if you take a look at the taxable equivalent yields of municipal bonds, even today in the A-rated space, and you compare it to the taxable counterparts, there's certainly still value there, right? So with cash earning zero, with limited options, um, there's still certainly a lot of opportunity that investors can look to take advantage of. Nisha Patel, a parametric with the breakdown of municipal bonds. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Have a nice weekend. Still ahead on the show, have you ever been the victim of a porch pirate? Well, there are some smart home devices that could ensure the safety of your deliveries. Those details are coming up next.
as people begin to return to the office, some companies are betting on e-commerce spending to continue. Frank Holland is digging into how retail is going high tech to take on delivery dilemmas like people stealing packages. Frank. Hey there, Dom. The $80 billion home device market that includes the Amazon Alexa and Google Home is getting a new addition to make e-commerce a bit easier. Smart home boxes are Internet of Things-enabled electric-powered containers that create a contactless, secure, and temperature-controlled way for you to get your packages and even your groceries delivered when you aren't at home. Now, we all know that remote work is the new normal, but those doing it always to sometimes has fallen from 70% back in April to 56% in February. Still, e-commerce, it remains elevated. In 2020, 10% of Americans started using grocery delivery, almost tripling the number in 2019. New MasterCard research forecasts that trend will continue even after the pandemic. Walmart is partnering with a startup called Home Ballet and running a pilot program for grocery delivery near Walmart's headquarters in Arkansas. The boxes, they can be unlocked by mobile phone or they open up automatically when a delivery arrives. The founders say this technology also unlocks new business models. For every grocer, the, the real value here is that they can pick and pack 24-7 and deliver 24-7. So the real question is, how much will consumers pay for this convenience? Home Valet, they're still figuring that out. And they're trying to figure out the price only for the box, but also a potential subscription service. DinoSafe, they say their offering is 400 bucks. Lock Company Yale has boxes that sell for up to $330, Dom. All right. So, Frank, just how big of a problem are stolen packages, those porch pirates, so to speak? It's a big problem, Dom. Forty three percent of people say they've had a package stolen. The average cost of that stolen package, one hundred and thirty six dollars. All right. It's a big deal for sure there. Frank Holland, thank you very much. Thank you. Big deal for those on those smart home boxes. Well, that does it here for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. At Capella University. You'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.